Are you fascinated by true crime like us? If so, check out our podcast, Crime Divers, hosted by me, Jill. And me, Laura. Look out for new episodes every Tuesday when we discuss true crime from around the world. So what are you waiting for? Come join us as we dive in. You are listening to We Are Distractions Podcast, a podcast where we chat true crime, conspiracy theories, folklore, paranormal stories, and to be honest, a little bit of everything in between. I'm Alex. And Christy. This week we are back to true crime and just a big old warning, this one's going to be a doozy. I feel like I say that almost every episode, (laughs) but this one is going to be interesting. And a doozy. An interesting doozy. Definitely a weird distraction. We love it. Um, Before we dive into the story, just a little bit of housekeeping. So uh, we have merch, which is awesome. Definitely... Uh, definitely you need to be checking that out. So we are in Redbubble. Um, I, I I literally shop for, I don't everything. know, five everything on Redbubble. I've probably been using Redbubble for five years now. So um, we've got stickers, there's mugs, there's T-shirts, literally almost anything you can imagine. So definitely check that out. And once again, that is Redbubble. And if you just type in Weird Distractions Podcast, uh, you'll find us there. Uh, We also are going to be doing Patreon. So that's cool. If you want to essentially support us financially, you don't have to. But hey, if you want to, that's cool. Uh, We essentially were hoping to start Patreon as a way for us to upgrade equipment, maybe do some spooky uh, explorations or travels in the future when we're not in a fucking lockdown. Um, But we're essentially hoping to use that money to make more exciting content so uh we're going to be having bonus episodes uh i think bonus episodes you can get free stickers depending on the tier uh shout outs uh listener requested episodes it's it's pretty it's pretty neat so we're starting that um the first patreon bonus episode comes out the end of january the very last day and Billing for Patreon will start in February. So that's that's that. You should go check it out. Check it out. And finally, we are doing a giveaway. So starting January 4th, we have opened up a giveaway, I believe, for January 4th to the 24th, where if you go to our Instagram, you can see a specific post where it kind of gives you the lay down. So you have to like the post, share it to your story, make sure to take us. But the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate thing you need to do is so if you go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. It would be great if you left us five stars. I mean, if you're going to leave us a shitty review, that's going to hurt our feelings. But I mean, we didn't, we didn't decipher like just distinct which kind of review just a review in general but either way send it to us either by instagram or by email um and you have a chance to win a weird distractions mug some stickers and a 25 dollars gift card to amazon all the goodies and yes we would prefer some nice reviews but whatever you like (laughs) i mean if you want to leave us a shitty review, make it creative. I would like to see some words I've never even heard of before. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and you're gonna be harsh. 
be nice criticism. Yeah, and be creative. Uh, we, we will be announcing the winner on Instagram on the 25th. But like I said, head over to our Instagram where we are distractions pod. Um, you can find more information there. So Christy, so, what is your need for a distraction this week? Um, my need for distraction is going to be my sadly usual. I just came off a very busy week, worked two doubles upon like a stretch of seven days. And the post New Year's, like people coming in because it's winter. It's like everyone right. falls on their ass. Everyone breaks their fucking wrist. Yeah. Like, I get it's COVID because everyone's like, well, I want to get outside and get some fresh air. And I was like, stop going on the ice. That's my pet peeve for this week. I am just going to say this comes out two days before my birthday. My need for a distraction is I am inching my way to 30 and I hate it. Okay, calm down. <laughs> I know. So three I, more years. There is this TikTok that's going around where it's essentially like uh, people born in the 1990s enjoying their 20s. And it's this guy dancing to Body by Meg, Meg the Stallion. And then all of a sudden mm. they look out the window and it's just. It's like the 30s. It's the 30, your 30s. Dun, dun. And I have never realized how close we are to 30. And you know what? I don't think 30 is going to be bad. I'm not saying that. It's just the ultimate fear of getting older, you know? You know what I'm going to be? I'm going to be 30, flirty, and thriving. Yeah. <laughs> love it. I love it. You know what I don't love, though? What? The person we're going to be talking about today. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. So this is going to be a little bit, we're going to present it a little bit different than usual. So um, Christy has graciously agreed to split up this case with me because I, well, originally I was going to do this as a Patreon bonus episode. And then all of a sudden I just kept finding more information and my notes went from three pages to like eight. Uh, so so jokes. <laughs> jokes. Decided to make it an actual regular episode so everyone can hear, but it is, it's a doozy, as I've mentioned. So Christy is going to cover kind of the end tail of this path, and I'm going to bring you this the sweet, sweet beginning. Um, I'm going to, there's one particular trigger warning I do have documented, but just an overall trigger warning, I think. Um, it's, it's a case that it's not going to sit well with people. And before we also dive into that, I do want to shout out that Spooky. Um, I believe it was Tyler that covered this episode way, way back in the beginning of their show. Uh, I heard it. I was like, holy crap, that's really interesting. Kind of stayed in my brain for a little bit. And I was like, you know what? I kind of want to talk about it as well um, and do our own little weird distractions twist on it. But if you like us, you're going to love that Spooky. I am obsessed. I'm actually one of their Patreons and they just make me happy. So uh, definitely check them out wherever you listen to podcasts. Because they're great. Because they're great. Christy, are you ready? Yeah, let's go to the spookiness. All right. So this week we are talking about Robert Bennett Jr., a.k.a. the Handcuff Man. So the story starts with a successful attorney, Robert Bennett Sr. and his wife, Annabelle Maxwell Bennett. The couple married in 1933 and sometime had moved to Tawanda, Pennsylvania. And after about 10 years after they originally got married, Robert Bennett was appointed president of Citizen and Northern Bank. Uh, Annabelle would be mostly known as a volunteer for the Red Cross, while Robert would also partake in volunteer activities such as Boy Scouts. So the couple was 
doing good. Like they were, they had a really comfortable life. They traveled often. They were essentially living what some would call the American dream, but something was missing. It was Ambien. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) It was what? It was Ambien. They were missing Ambien. No. Uh, They were missing a child. Okay. So Robert Lee Bennett Jr. was 22 months old when he was adopted by the Bennetts. Uh, We don't really know his exact birth date, which really grinds my gears because I don't know what his astrological sign is. So for all we know, this is a problem for you. It's such a problem for me. And to be honest, this guy could be a Scorpio and we will never know. We'll never know. That's anyway, very key. It's very key. Scorpio uh, or Virgo. Well, exactly. Or Gemini. Because like I said before, no disrespect, but y'all feisty. So I'm going to ballpark his birth year, at least between 1943 and 1950. Once again, don't know for shizzle. Who's to say? Uh, allegedly before Robert was adopted, it was documented that he had been abused and neglected. I don't know. I'm going to assume wildly maybe by his biological parents, but to be honest, once again, don't know. There's, there's a lot of information about this, but about this case, sorry, but it's not, it's not as clean and neat and tidy with a bow on top as typical cases are. Mm. I see, I see. Which is problematic just like him. Anyways, so... Uh, Robert Jr. was known to have a fairly good and wealthy childhood with the Bennetts. As a teenager, he was known to be very outgoing, very active, and in different organizations. Overall, he wasn't really known to be a bully or to be a victim of bullying. He was pretty average. Like, he wasn't... He wasn't known to, like, excel, but he also wasn't known to be, you know, struggling by any means. He was just trying to get by. He was just trying... Get get through high school or whatever. Exactly. So after he was done high school, he got a pretty sick gift from his parents. So Robert Sr. gave him a $167,000 house located on Lake Wisocking. I'm probably... I'm sorry? Yeah. Probably butchering that lake, wrong, lake name wrong, but that's that's. I feel like that's the least of our issues right now. Um, if you give someone a house that's $167,000, like, I know. hello, I, I know. I think my parents... Okay, I don't think I got a, a high school graduation gift, but I know when I completed my bachelor's degree, they gave me a ukulele. So I don't know what that says about me, but. Uh, Are you pro now? Absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. It's literally sitting in my office slash recording room. And sure. yeah, the only time I take it out is when I get stickers from Redbubble <laughs> to put it on my ukulele. <laughs> um. But this this new house that he got was actually 12 minutes away from Tawanda, where his parents lived. So either way, Robert, his life was pretty cushy. I'm not going to frame it any other way. He was sitting pretty. Mm-hmm. So he would go on and then graduate from the University of Denver in 1969 and then would go to the University of Virginia to get his master's degree. So it was while he was doing his master degree in master's degree, sorry, in 1971, Robert would be charged with indecent exposure, and it's been documented that the records about this charge were expunged. Let me guess, he peed in public or something stupid. Well, it doesn't say, but like maybe. I mean, I I, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I speculate, but don't know. <laughs> I speculate, but really, I have no idea what's happening. 
So fast forward three years from this event, Robert Jr. would follow his father's footsteps and earn a law degree from Atlanta's Ermore University. So he's just going to universities left, right, and center, apparently. Like, he's university hopping like mad. He's uh, a forever student, apparently. <laughs> hashtag forever student. Because when you're a forever student, you don't... You, you still get, grow like, up. <laughs> well, you don't grow up, but you still get, like, the same, the student perks. Like, the second you're out, I'm, I'm not meaning to, like, totally go off cue, but the second you're out of university, the real the world looks at you as an adult, and they're like, yeah, you don't get those discounts anymore. And you're like, oh. Yeah, take everything away from you. But I'm but I'm still poor. And they're like, that's nice. Pay your student loans back. And you're like, okay. Yeah, I'm too poor for that either. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still too poor. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, he then took a job with his father's law firm uh, of Davis Murphy and Bennett in Pennsylvania. Even though he was within the justice system for work, he would find himself being involved with the justice system outside of his nine to five. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Robert Jr. allegedly approached a plainclothes Atlantic officer who was working undercover to catch male hustlers on 5th Street near Cypress Street. The undercover cop was assigned to try and imitate a sex worker um, to essentially arrest interested Johns. And Johns are... For those who don't know, that's what a customer of a sex worker is often referred to. So the undercover cop was either approached by Rob- Robert Jr. or approached Robert Jr. himself. We're not sure. Uh, but essentially, it led to the undercover cop being kidnapped by Robert Jr. So he kidnapped a picked cop. Picked a bad one. He picked a bad, a, a bad one to, to pick up on that day. Could you imagine, though, like, you're an undercover cop and you're just doing your thing and someone fucking kidnaps you? Yeah, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go to my shift today. No biggie. Just going to go trick some people. And then I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, I mean, someone's <laughs> drunk now. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> I got tricked. Uh, Robert Jr. would be charged with kidnapping. However, the charge would later be dropped. Uh, he would plead no contest to battery and would only pay a $75 fine, so about $396 in 2020. I'm sorry, I feel like it dropped. I know. I feel like, well, okay, here's, here, I mean, the guy's dad is a lawyer. He is a lawyer. Okay, fair, but he kidnapped a cop. Exactly. But I feel like it's still that time where if you had money, well, I, I should, shouldn't say it's still that, it, it was that time, because it's still that time. Let's get real. If you're a, a white person. person. Yeah, a white wealthy person, and and you're willing to buy your way out of shit. You're gonna buy your way out of shit. Let's mm. let's let's be transparent let's be here. So I feel like he just went to his dad, and his dad probably bailed him out. And then, obviously, with who, who his dad is, he was kind of let go on just a slap on the wrist. Cause he like a seventy five dollar fine. That's pretty fucking light for you know kidnapping a cop. Yeah, and for it to be like so, it's about only four hundred bucks. Like this time, I'm like still like that's still too little exactly you can you can buy almost a brand new car and that could be your monthly payment right like it's it's Mm -hmm. still too little kind so this wouldn't be the end of robert jr's legal matters i mean obviously we're talking this is a case for us (laughs) could you imagine like all right and that's the end of our show no, of course, it's got to continue as we get really pissed off, I'm sure. Yes. So in 1976, Robert Jr. would cross paths with a younger male uh, who was traveling from New York. 
Robert Jr. bought this guy a drink before they headed back to Robert's car and were reportedly engaged in sex. Afterwards, they went to Robert's lakeside cottage, but at some point, the other guy got scared and took off in Robert's car away from the house. So he essentially, you know, they did their thing. They went back to his place. Maybe Robert said or did something, and the guy from New York was just like, you know took what? Took his car. Yeah, took his car and left. Like, was like, nope, peace. Uh, He's a really bad kidnapper at this random thinking. Yeah. <laughs> He just, he tries, but he just doesn't succeed at all. Clearly not. So the New Yorker was allegedly too afraid to press charges, either knowing or finding out later on who Robert's father was, which would lead to a common trend in those who came across Robert Jr. during this time. Not only that, but this was the 70s. And even though there were some movements happening for the gay community, it was still not a safe environment for some, if not all, to out themselves. So... And I think we've covered this in other episodes with other people of minority status where you didn't want to essentially say, oh, yeah, I'm part of this community because essentially you would be not considered important then. Right. Yeah. Like, your case would be like basically dismissed because you're like, oh, OK, bye. Never mind. Exactly. Like, oh, you're the, you're you're gay or oh, you're a sex worker. Mm, OK, don't waste our time, essentially, which is so fucking shitty. Like I said, it's going to get worse. So so after the incident with the New Yorker, Robert Jr. moved to Atlanta and would find work at the law firm Kids, Pickens, and Tate. While he wasn't at work, Robert would attack male sex workers in the Atlanta area and would lure them in by paying them to drink vodka, apparently stating that this was for a, quote, research study. That sounds super sketchy. Right? No, and I was thinking about today... Uh, before we were recording, I'm like, if this was 18-year-old Alex, yeah, I I would have definitely been like, oh, for a research study, of course I'll drink vodka. 26-year-old Alex is like, if I drink vodka, if I smell vodka, if... if I have revolted. Yeah, if the bottle enters my home and it's still closed, I will throw up. <laughs> but I mean, hey, it was the 70s. It was I don't different... know, still pretty sketch. Still pretty sketch. So... The vodka would be laced and victims would wake up handcuffed, even sometimes burned, primarily on their genitals. Robert also apparently tried to light some victims' bodies on fire when they were awake. And because the handcuffing was typical in Robert's attacks, he would be known in warning to male sex workers as the handcuff man. Oh, he's got his own little title. How famous. He's got his own little title. How cute. Just kidding. He's gross. If you haven't picked up on that. Anyways. One victim by the name of James Crow would later recall a tragic encounter with a handcuffed man. It was the summer of 1977. James was hitchhiking from Budford Highway, I think, into Atlanta. At some point, James ended up around Piedman Park, a local gain hangout. A tall, slim guy with large glasses approached James asking him if he drank, in which James said he did. The tall gentleman then asked James if he wanted to make some money. Curious, James asked how, in which Robert replied, the more shots you drink, the more money I give you. So James got into his blue Cadillac and was provided some booze. James, starting to feel tipsy, was then taken to a trailer park before the man began groping him. James tried to get out of the car, but he was stopped by the man who grabbed his long hair. James was able to escape, 
unlock the car door and get the hell out of Dodge, not before he fell with the man not far behind him. James began throwing rocks and screaming at the man to essentially get the fuck out. All the while, he was feeling a sharp stinging pain in his shoulder. James was able to escape, luckily. He didn't seek out medical attention or go to police because at the time, James was working as a sex worker and feared that his sister may find out that what he was doing um, and it essentially became like a catch-22. Like, he was damned to say anything. He was damned not to say anything. Which is sad because literally, like, this dude's kidnapped, basically, and then attacked and all because he's wanted some drinks, which is still sketchy. Don't get in the car. Exactly. Well, and I think at the time, James was... I don't know if he was... he was going to get paid, maybe? I don't know. Well, yeah, he thought he was going to get paid. He was struggling probably financially. We don't know. Maybe he wasn't struggling. Maybe he was just like, you know what, this dude, he's kind of weird. But like, hey, if he wants to hang out, let him hang out. If he wants to give me money, let him give me money. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I said, if this was 18-year-old Alex, I'd be like, fuck yeah, I need to pay for books. Do you know how expensive textbooks are? Stupid expensive. Pay for my cell phone bill. (laughs) Do you know how expensive it is to live right now? too fucking expensive is what it is yeah no i do not miss being a university student let me tell you that for free so weeks later james went back to the park with another sex worker friend when they saw the man james had escaped from he pointed the man out to his friend in which his friend noted he recognized this guy and stated that he has a bad reputation not like taylor swift but a really bad reputation Uh, Many sex workers referred to this dude as the handcuff man. Around this time, Robert began dating Sandra Powell, a legal secretary who worked at his firm. Sandra was around, uh, or sorry, Sandra was about five years older than Robert, and the two began carpooling prior to becoming romantically involved. Their relationship is interesting. Robert had apparently told Sandra that their relationship could appear to be whatever it was you know, whatever normal was at that time to the outside world. But in reality and behind closed doors, they would just be platonic companions. Which, like, so he was she- looking for a cover for his gayness. And she was like, okay, I just want a boyfriend or something to yeah. make someone happy. And you know what? There is no shame in that. Because I, I understand that there are people who, like, have family members that are, that are against any kind of, anything that's not heterosexuality, so to speak, right? So if you mm-hmm. need to... And that's the thing, like, you shouldn't have to pretend around people that care about, that supposedly care about you. But I I also get it. Like, I can understand how that could be a way to avoid a really shitty situation, right? Yeah, and then just at one point, like, also making them more comfortable in, like, what they're trying to start or, like, express themselves or figure out what they want as a person so they can do in that relationship without having to be completely out yet. Exactly. And like I said, yes, there were some movements happening around this time, but it was still the 70s. So in other words, this platonic companionship meant no sexual relationship or anything like that. And Robert also supposedly told Sandra he was impotent. So Sandra, like they they would never have kids. Um, Robert proposed to Sandra in 1978 under this condition in which Sandra agreed. Regardless of whether they were intimate or not, the two reportedly did actually have feelings for each other. Like, they did care about each other, supposedly, and they would spend time together. Like, it wasn't like they were, I don't know, just hanging out, doing nothing, so to speak. Like, they actually liked each other. They actually enjoyed each other's company. And apparently, Robert would lavish Sandra in gifts. 
Um, there was, okay, the one thing I had an issue with was this one, it was like one or two articles where essentially it made note of like how much Sandra wasn't making in comparison to Robert and like how... Exactly. And it was like, oh, well, you know, she wasn't making as much. She was just like a legal administrator assistant or whatever. Or sorry, a legal secretary. And, you know, her salary was like only this much a year. I'm like, who fucking cares? Yeah. Who cares? And like, even if she was like, even if she was attracted to Robert originally for the money and like, yeah, maybe she wanted some of that money. Get it, sister. Like, fuck, I would do the same if I knew a lawyer friend. Probably not. I don't know. Anyways. There's no shame in that either. No, That's... for him to, like, propose to her and them to be, like, that close still. Like, obviously, there's something, some kind of connection, whether, like, obviously not romantic, but, or intimate, but still something there that might, someone wants to get together and stay together. Exactly. And I'm sorry, I think Cardi B calls that, what, a money move? Get your Sandra. No judgment here. Uh Shortly after the two tied the knot, though, Robert quit the firm and decided to work as a jewelry salesperson within the Columbia Mall, but eventually he stopped working altogether. <laughs> so so it, it went from, hey, money move. She get that money to nothing. <laughs> to, oh, we're married now, so I'm going to be a stay-at-home person. Yeah, which... no, nobody. <laughs> Uh, but the reason behind this, and this could be just me kind of stretching or thinking that this may be why, but Robert came from money. Let's not forget. Like, Robert's mm. parents were pretty wealthy. Uh, he maybe didn't really feel like he needed that money anymore. Like, he didn't need to make his own money. On top of that, Robert Sr. had passed away around this time from heart failure, leaving his son with a very comfy cushion of money. Uh, This included portfolios of stocks, the Tawanda Mansion, and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, like, I feel like if you're ever raised, like, personally, like, me and you, like, if you, like, living a privilege is great, like, I, all kudos to you, but if you ever have to, like, work for it, then you know how important it is that you're like, okay, I can't fuck this up, or I need this job, or I need these savings, like, it's you know when it is when you need it exactly like how many day how many days a week do we say to each other fuck this i'm quitting but then yeah we go back because we know we need the money to pay to live essentially right so like every day of my life we don't know what it's like to come from super wealthy parent like families and that's cool that's whatever but Mm -hmm. robert did and robert essentially was like you know what i don't need to make my own income my income's already made for me Must be nice. Must be nice. Can't relate. According to Sandra, he would sit around the home all day and would still be in his robe when she came home from work. So she's still working at the firm and he's just kind of lounging around doing his thing. Um, Essentially, what we do know is that he would spend his days kind of like lounging around, painting, gardening when he felt like it. But then he would leave and partake in a very different lifestyle than what Sandra potentially may have known of. Um, Mm. And that's the thing. We don't know if Sandra knew for sure. Like, I don't, it's not on the wall that she knew, but I don't want to discredit her for being like completely oblivious. And we'll get to it somewhere in this wild roller coaster ride. So. Sometime in early 1982, a young man by the name of Cleveland Bubb was standing on the corner in Atlanta, and he was approached by another man in a blue car. The man asked Cleveland Bubb if he wanted to drink a bottle of vodka with him and offered him $100 to do it. Cleveland agreed, got in the car, and the two began drinking. 
They eventually continued their drinking at the Texas Drilling Company Bar, which was a local gay bar to have, you know, just some more drinks, some more casual hangout, whatever. Bub recalls waking up in a parking lot, potentially having blacked out. Only dressed in his pants, he found he had two cigarette burns, one on his stomach and one on his arm. The man was nowhere to be found. Goodie. Around this time, specifically September of 1982, Robert would be arrested for the murder and armed robbery of 24-year-old James Lee Johnson. James was a local dishwasher who had died by gunfire, left to be found by police with his wallet missing. Supposedly, Sandra was walking home when she witnessed Robert being put into handcuffs by police. And here's where things get shitty. Unfortunately, the charges would be dropped sometime in November 1982, as there wasn't sufficient evidence f- to continue on with Robert. So essentially, they arrested him. This guy him. just keeps getting off. I know. And he kind of reminds me a little bit of Sam Little. With, with Sam, like, I felt like all of his, like, he, he kept getting arrested, but yet there wasn't always enough evidence just to keep him. You know what I mean? Like, he had so many interactions with police, and Robert kind of has that same MO, where he keeps having interactions with the law, but there's nothing, he doesn't get nailed each time. Do you know what I mean? I feel like this is, like, a, a recurring event, like, theme with all freaking serial killers. Like, this guy's like, oh, I'm gonna keep getting off. Then, like, Robert Picton kept getting off, because they're prostitutes. And, like, Ted Bundy kept getting away because of the way he looked and girls didn't come forward. It's like, they just have that theme of, like, someone keeps getting off. And I'm like, if they had just been arrested and stayed there the first time and none of this would have happened, there would be no story to tell. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's interesting because there's so many other serial killers or at least well-known murderers around this time that have that exact same story of, you know, it was between the 60s and the early 90s where you know, essentially they would be picked up by police, but then had to be let go. And yet all this time they're doing all these like heinous fucking things Mm -hmm. and never actually being arrested until it was almost, I don't want to say until it was too late, but pretty much until it was too late. Right. Like it had gone so far. They're like, okay, how did the fuck did it get this far? Exactly. Exactly. So Robert was released. um, As I said, in November, when he came home, uh, Sandra was essentially at the door. She's like, mm, hi, Bobbage. I wasn't expecting you to come home. Uh, yeah, I'm leaving. So Robert was scared shitless because let's not forget, Robert came from money. And what's one thing that people are afraid of when it comes to marriage and divorce? Take away your money. Exactly. So uh, she wanted the money. And you know what? Money moves, Sandra, because she took him to court for a divorce. Once the divorce trial began and things, you know, started kind of ramping up, uh, apparently three gay male prostitutes attended and testified at Sandra and Robert's divorce hearing, in which these men supposedly stated that Robert was the infamous handcuff man. Like, they're like, yeah, this dude's, like, he's been around our block before, this, that, and the other. I don't know if Sandra knew about this before they testified. I don't know if she tipped off her lawyer. To find them? Exactly. That's why, like, earlier I was like, I don't know what's going on. I mean, she could have also found out at the hearing, which I feel like would also be a really devastating... Well, yeah, either way you paint it, it's a shit situation for Sandra, right? Um, you're, div- you're divorcing your husband. I, like, I get what it was platonic, but still, like, you're like, okay, I'm still. divorcing him, and now it's coming out. Oh, he was this um, gay, like, 
predator to other gay people. Exactly. At the end of the trial, Sandra was given the divorce and provided a forty thousand a lump sum of forty thousand dollars, while Robert was expected to pay the twelve thousand dollar lawyer fees for her as well. Thanks. So I mean, I don't know how much he was worth, but I still feel like forty thousand wasn't enough, you know? Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just like greedy, but like forty thousand dollar, that's But back I, then it could have been a lot more. Yeah, I mean I didn't do the translation from then to then to now, but I don't know. I feel like Sandra deserved a lot more. It also depends again, like what he had left. Like I know he got his money when his dad died, but like he probably burned through that when he wasn't working. So it's like, Ooh, what yeah. did he really have left in the end? Exactly. After the divorce, Robert bounced back and forth from Tawanda and Florida, helping his disabled mother, Annabelle, during the winter and spring months. But perhaps in his spare time, he was spending time in Atlanta. Why do I say this? Because some sketchy shit was going on in Atlanta. That Sometime in 1983, he would actually be banned from a gay bar where a gay male prostitute complained to an officer that Robert was picking up men and physically abusing them. Robert would even sign a document acknowledging that he understood he was being banned from this bar and that he could be charged with trespassing if he ever came back. So, so he knows he's a shitty person. Okay. Yeah. So just a he he signed a legal document that says, I, Robert Bennett Jr., am the shittiest human being and I won't come back to this location. I should probably fuck off, but I'm not going to fuck off yet because he's not. a because I am a shitty person, sign Robert. XOXO. <laughs> <laughs> XOXO. Gossip girl. Gossip girl. So, skipping forward to 1984, uh, Myers Vaughn Hirschsprung would be the next openly documented contact of the handcuffed man in what I'm going to call a near miss. So, Myers was reportedly approached by Robert similarly to his previous victims. He pulled, was, you know, uh, he was approached by someone pulling over, offering a ride. The handcuffed man had introduced himself as a professor at Georgia Tech and noted he was doing a study around people's alcohol tolerance levels. He offered Myers $100 to drink whatever as fast as he could. If Myers could still walk, he would be, you know, he would essentially be prompted to drink more. So it's kind of one of those, I kind of picture it as like the game of ketchup. Did you ever play ketchup? I don't think so. Essentially, if you showed up late to a party, you drank as fa- as much and as fast as you could to catch up with everybody else. That sounds like death. Yeah, I remember Jamie playing that game a lot. <laughs> like, a lot. <laughs> so Rough. Uh, he, Myers was immediately thinking, like, mm, what? Like, what is this? What is, what is this proposition? And he was coming up close to his location. Myers asked to be let go, in which the handcuffed man supposedly obliged. This wouldn't be the same response when a gay male prostitute named Chico came in contact with the handcuffed man. So Myers, like I said, near miss, like super near miss. If he would have been like, yeah, sure, I'll drink. He might not have been able to survive. Which is very sad. Very sad. But luckily for him, he was able to you know, get out of the car and go to wherever he needed to go. Chico, on the other hand, uh, you know, kind of same gig. The handcuff man picked Chico up, but this time the handcuff man apparently showed Chico a pair of handcuffs and asked him to put them on. Chico uh, being a skeptical Susie, which she should always be a skeptical Susie. Always be skeptical. Susie. Specifically a Susie. Okay. Susie. Uh, Chico asked to be let out of the car, which the handcuff man reportedly said no. 
At this point, Chico saw the door w- the door locked was removed and the handle was con- covered in duct tape, but the window was open. So, yeah. Chico went out of the window to escape the handcuff man, bruise and scratch, but was able to still escape without any other injuries. As you may have guessed, not everyone was able to escape. So in April of 1985, Max Schrader was spending some time near Ponce de Leon and Barnett Street in Atlanta. If anyone from a- I know if anyone from Atlanta is listening, please DM us about how you pronounce that because I I I Sorry. don't know. Sorry. And apparently Max was looking for any financial opportunity that he could find. A man in a car approached Max to, quote, get hard, get a hard on for me. I'll drive around the block and come back, which he did. When the driver came back, he asked Ma- Max if he drank vodka, which Max said he did. He was then handed a brown drink, being told by the driver that he had pre-mixed the drink with some Coca-Cola. So it was a vodka and Coke. Ew. Yeah. And this is where I'm going to say trigger warning. It's going to get pretty... Not great here, so if you want to skip ahead like a minute or two, that's totally fine, but uh, trigger warning. So, Max drank the drink and shortly after crunched over, feeling woozy. He was then pulled into the vehicle and taken to a wooded area where his clothes were removed, a cold liquid was poured over his privates before being set on fire. His attacker then fled the scene. A half-conscious Max screamed for his life and luckily... Someone had heard his cries and called 911. Max then would spend the next two months in the hospital trying to recover. The handcuffs man's needs weren't met, whether he knew about Max's survival, but regardless, he was on a new torture path. So, unfortunately, Max obviously, like, fortunately enough, Max lived. Unfortunate enough, he was absolutely tortured. Yeah, like, it's very sad that would happen, but then it's like, okay, that was just not enough what he needed, so he's going to then go screw someone else's life up. Exactly. So, on June 10th, 1986, Michael Johnson and Anthony Tony Papilla were hanging out near this damn street again, Ponce de Leon Street (laughs) in Atlanta. A man who identified as Jim approached Tony in a vehicle and offered him $50 to participate in a university study. The study, testing people's alcohol tolerance. Shocker. Tony told Michael the license plate number and description of Jim before going back to the vehicle to get in. So essentially, Tony was like, uh, yeah, sure. Like, probably wants wants to or needs to make money. And then goes back to his friends like, hey, dude, like, this is, this is the license plate and the name of the guy that I'm going to, like, hang out with for a little bit. You know, just so you know. It's still sketchy, but then a little safe that he told them the details, which is good. Yes. So Michael apparently did forewarn Tony as to stories of weirdo referred to as the handcuff man were going around. Um, essentially that this guy named the handcuff man was picking up gay male sex workers and doing heinous things to them. So after cruising and doing his study on Tony, Jim asked if he wanted a pair of jean shorts, a.k.a. jorts, to wear it to be more comfortable, which Tony agreed to. And I just find it weird that Why? you just... I'm confused with that. Yeah. So apparently, like, okay, I do refer to him a lot as he or the handcuff man, but I'm going to say Robert because it's associated with his name everywhere. But who mm-hmm. keeps a pair of jorts around? Who, who keeps a pair of jorts? 
I'm just confused. Someone, some guy who doesn't like jeans but gets really hot. I don't know. But something really weird. <laughs> and to be fair, I feel like, you know, you should always have extra backup clothes. But the fact that he offers him, the fact that he's offering clothes to somebody else, not knowing who is going to exactly say, yeah, for sure, I'll get in the car with you. Like, how many, what size range do you have? Do you have my waistband? Is it the right length? Is it enough fraying for me for the jorts? Exactly. And, like, what kind of, I don't know. I just feel like that's very specific. Like, is he just looking for men that look like, that have the same waistband length? I, I don't, I digress. I don't know. Anyway, so, Tony had changed into the shorts under some, stairs outside of a bar where he noticed there were no pockets in them so he had to leave his wallet and other stuff in his other pants in the car tony and jim went to a bar having some drinks tony's memory would start to blur with more drinks he did recall that the pair had when the pair had left the bar it appeared as if jim was trying to kind of beeline it heading and eventually trying to take off away from tony However, Tony was able to get in the car. Uh, Jim all of a sudden pushed him out of the car while it was moving. Tony essentially was being mugged um, because if you think about it, his pants were still in the car. What was in his pants pocket? With his wallets and all of his ID and shit, right? So he stated this out, this uh, realization of being mugged. He's like, holy shit, I probably, well, I'm not, I don't know what exactly he said, but this is my uh, rendition of it. My assumption of it oh shit, oh fuck, I've been mugged, uh, in which, you know, people obviously started, like, nearby were like, oh shit, are you okay, yada yada. But, Tony was beginning to pass out. Uh, a man who was taking out the trash had heard him and, you know, luckily called other people to approach the scene because Tony had actually passed out at this point. So he made this realization, he's kind of getting woozy, and then all of a sudden he just passes out. Um, when Tony came to, a group of men were around him. He was able to provide his address before passing out again. When Tony woke up again, he was at a Dunkin' Donuts with two Atlanta officers who asked him if they could identify Jim. I just feel like that's really sketchy, first of all. Like, yeah, take, the, like take this poor man to the hospital. He's passing out. Don't take him to Dunkin'. Like Dunkin' Donuts. Exactly. Well, okay. I mean, Dunkin' Donuts is really... It's a good place. It's delicious. Says the people that only went once (laughs) when we were in the States. It was the one time magnificent. Exactly. But still, like, he probably should have sought out medical attention. Mm -hmm. Right? So, in a stroke of luck, Jim was apparently standing in the Duncan parking lot being blocked in by two other men's vehicles who had heard what happened to Tony. Like, how fucking crazy is that? Like, he apparently, I don't know if the Dunkin' Donuts was near the bar and if Jim, a.k.a. the handcuff man, a.k.a. Robert, um, you know, had fled the scene and then came back because, you know, that saying of, you know, the the suspect always comes back to the scene. I don't know if he was getting coffee after what have you, but they were at the same Dunkin' Donuts, allegedly. If I was Jim, who was trying to be a smart, like, stupid crook person, you're yeah. trying to get away. So, like, I don't know why you're chilling around a place to wash or if you, like didn't plan on doing that like you should have been gone far gone away before you they please you get to the guy i almost wonder if he did that though because he wanted to see if tony was like if tony passed out and was in like 
vulnerable, right? Because don't, let's not forget, Robert slash the handcuff man slash Jim slash whatever the fuck title he wants to have, he liked to burn people when they were passed out, right? And he did fucked up shit to them, right? So I wonder True. if he was like taking a break at Duncan allegedly like i don't know thinking of going back to the scene where he left tony to then do to some find him and see if he can burn him exactly exactly so jim and i say that with air quotations jim was blocked in at the duncan Donuts parking lot with two other vehicles who had heard what happened to tony one of the men was Charles Fallow, uh, who was friends with Tony and had actually encountered Jim nine months prior. Supposedly, Charles and Tony were drinking together when Jim assaulted and robbed Charles as well. So this isn't the first time that Jim, a.k.a. Robert, a.k.a. the handcuff man, was mugging people. What you get around. And so maybe you're right in terms of, like, Sandra's... Uh, like how much Sandra got at the end of the divorce maybe he had burned through most of his money and maybe mm. that's why he's mugging people either that or he's just a sick twisted fuck which I feel like is also a very valid reason could be both could be both so we're not sure how many more men cross paths with Jim or the handcuffed man we actually don't even know if like so supposedly he was blocked in but there was no arrest at this point so I don't we don't know if he was even sought out by police, if maybe he escaped somehow. Like, there's very few, there's not a lot of information at that point. All we know mm-hmm. is that apparently he was at the Dunkin' Donuts around the same time. Supposedly he was blocked in, but there was no arrest. So it kind of makes me wonder, okay, was did like, he get away? Like, did he get away? Yeah. Exactly. Um, we do know that in February 1991, Gary Clapp was the next documented man to come across the handcuffed man. And this is where you are taking the torch of this horrible story. Yes. So Gary was jobless and had moved to Florida from Massachusetts to find work to support his fiance and daughter. He was primarily in the Tampa area for what we know. Trying to find food for the night, Gary went and waited outside the Salvation Army office. Gary wasn't aware that this is the area of the time that was populated with male, by male prostitutes and, as Murderpedia puts it, their predators. So, Gary was approached by a well-dressed man in a white Lincoln Town car who called Gary over and offered him $50 to drink vodka as a part of an experiment. Gary got into the car and then, when asking for the driver's name, he was met with no answer. Again, that'd be like, I'm getting out of the car. He probably couldn't think of a like a nickname or like an alias at the time. He's like, well, I used Jim last time, so do I go with Bob? No, it's too close to Robert. Oh, shit. I need to, like, I just need to do it. So the driver told Gary to drink faster. Ugh. And it didn't take long before Gary began losing consciousness, because obviously he was laced, I'm sure. Yeah. He, he would later then claim he thought that maybe they went to a bar, but he was going in and out of consciousness. A Tampa officer was driving on the Courtney Campbell Causeway when he spotted what looked like a bonfire nearby. But what he stumbled upon was burning Gary, unfortunately. Oh my fucking God. Mm -hmm. Gary did survive this attack, however, but it would need both of his legs amputated above the knee. Oh my God. It's so sad because it starts off as innocent as he's going to find work to support his family. And it ends up him meeting a heinous human being who likes to prey on people who are financially in need to get his rocks off, essentially. 
So Gary would later recant after this incident where he disclosed that his fiance had left him after the incident, which is also very sad. That's so sad. At the time of his interview, which I don't have an exact date for this, he was wheelchair bound and in a state run boarding home. I know. Things fell apart when this happened. I don't know why the guy didn't finish me off. This is not going to be easy, quoted Gary. My God. I know, which makes my heart hurt. Right? Like, go to get a job, lose my legs, lose my fiance, and I'm in a boarding home of a run by the exactly. State. So, police showed Gary some pictures of potential attackers, and sure enough, Robert, aka the handcuff man, aka Jim, aka the driver's photograph that was there. Police didn't snag Robert just yet, and unfortunately, in May of 1991, they found a severely burnt man in the name of Michael Jordan Jr. So clearly he, something happened and he got away and then he freaking goes off again. Yeah. So Michael had noticed that the Lincoln sported at Pinellas County, Florida. Since Michael was from Florida, he asked the driver, how are you doing, Clearwater? The driver responded, no, I'm from St. Pete. Do you want to make 50 bucks? Similar to previous stories, the driver told Michael he would make $50 by doing an experiment. Drink three pints. But the driver told Michael to walk around the corner to 5th Street in Juniper and then remove her shirt. And I'm like, okay, like, what is happening here? Now we're removing clothes. I know. And it's like the same as the other guy who he was like, okay, like, get a boner. I'm going to go around the street. When I get back, I hope you have a boner. Like, oh, dude, just. The weirdest things. The weirdest shit. And you know what? I get it. We shouldn't kink shame. But I feel like with Robert Bennett Jr., it's it's granted like we're we have a safe pass to do it because he's he's just fucked. a shitty person a shitty human being mm-hmm. michael obliged and the driver following his and the driver following his every move in the car he was followed to a nearby parking lot where he removed his shirt and was handed a drink michael had told the driver that he that he came from a long line of alcoholics and i'm going to be able to drink this no problem the driver ensured michael that he had got a bit drunk that he, the driver, a.k.a. Robert, had promised a rented room from him. Mixing the drinks with Coke, Michael began losing his consciousness. He would wake up at a hospital with severe burns on his privates and legs. Holy shit. I think Robert likes burning people's privates. Like, that's, that's his thing. But. Yeah, that's that's basically what I got out of it, is that he, he really enjoys handcuffing people and burning people and burning their private, like, essentially anything below the waist mm-hmm. or below the belt, if you want to be. Like, immobilize them or something i don't know exactly it didn't take it did take some time but michael was able to be interviewed by police and was able to pick up robert out in a photo thank god thank god another young man by the name of matthew red aka vernon reported to police that on the weekend of may 17th 1991 he was picked up by a man driving a lincoln Mm. it didn't take long for vernon to realize who had been picked who he had picked up by as whispers of this handcuffed man assailant were buzzing throughout the town he was able to jump out of the car. Not sure if it was moving or not, but the dude got the F out of there. Yeah, no kidding. Took the $20 the driver gave him, called him out as the handcuffed man, and forced himself to throw up as he did ingest some of the alcohol. Which, good, because I don't know good. if he would have actually been able to keep with himself, depending how laced it was. Exactly. Sometime around this, or after this, Max also picked up Robert out of a photograph by police. Good. So, like, they keep picking him out. So, like, does this, I don't know, is he homeless? Like, how is he not getting around? They need to get on top of this, is what I'm saying. Well, and it's interesting that, 
like I kind of feel like he's a little bit sloppy too. Like if you think about it, he he's driving the same car. We don't mm. know financially where he's at. Like we don't know if he has burned through all of his dad's money or what have you or what. But he's driving the same car. You know, he's the same kind of victim descriptions. Like he's like not people know who he is at this rate, basically. Exactly. So you'd think he'd be easy to catch. You'd think. You'd think, but. Mm, we'll get into it apparently not anyways i digress with a, yes with a number of victims pointing at robert bennett jr as a handcuff man and with an atlanta journal constitution reporter making a connection between robert and the handcuff man investigators went ahead and arrested robert thank god robert had his fingerprints taken publicly where he obviously denied being the handcuff man and lawyered up fairly quick his lawyer guy not note for the atlanta cases tried to paint the picture that investigators were trying to pin it on Robert as a way to get a conviction. Fun fact, Note had also been Robert's divorce lawyer. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Robert would be released on a $300,000 bail and retreated to his mother's. How does his mom would be like, GTFO. Like, well, and you gotta, with some serious stuff. You gotta wonder if mom even knew, right? That's true, but like, even just like, knowing that he was coming there after getting arrested, it'd be like, hey, what'd you get arrested for? And he could tell her, I'd be like, what the fuck? Yeah. Or even like, but I almost wonder if she even knew that he was arrested. Like, I, I don't know if she, uh, maybe, you know he what I came mean? Back and he's like, I just need to crash. Maybe like, I'm here on bail and I have to stay here for sure. Yeah. Cause all we know, he could be playing this uh, fake Charade life to her. Sort. Yeah. Yeah. The a fake charade to his mother being like, oh yeah, sorry. I had a business meeting and I don't just know. popping in. Yeah. Just hanging out. Just dropping by. So, Note requested a change of venue for the Atlanta charges due to the concern around jurors being influenced with the publicity surrounding the case, but it was denied, which was good. Note also waived his extradition to Florida. During the trial in September of 1991, Note went as far as allegedly saying that the burning of Gary wasn't at the hands of Robert, but at sanitarium ritual. Oh, my God. What? I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Yeah, like that's, you are fishing, my dear friend. Fishing. And just to a little definition-ish, um, Sanitaria is an Afro-Cuban religion that apparently is a mesh of Roman Catholic Catholicism and Yoruba. Yoruba? Sure. Also, what West did you Afri- call it before? <laughs> <laughs> I think you called like, it Sanitaria or something like that. <laughs> something like that. Sanitaria. Yes. <laughs> So it's a West African religion and was reportedly been tied to practice of animal sacrifice. We also so mean no dis- how that kind of turn. Yeah. That? I was going to say, we mean no disrespect also, but it's it, there. We're, we're, we're sometimes jolly phonic challenged as we'd like we to put bet. it here. We bet. No. Apparently there were some decapitation goats and chickens found not too far away from where Gary was discovered. But obviously this argument was scrapped. Well, no Gary. shit. Like what? Like nothing to do with that. Once again, his lawyer grabbed the fishing pole and just fucking went for it. Like, just absolutely trying to get anything he could find in that shitty river. And I don't know if he's, like, being a really good lawyer because, like, last time he got paid decent for this divorce because he knew he had money. But, like, I'm pretty sure Robert has nothing now. So Well, that's the thing, too, Probably right? not going to get paid. Exactly. Probably going to jail. Mm-hmm. Prosecutors in both Atlanta and Tampa had worked out a deal with Robert's lawyer. Shocker. Robert would plead guilty to the attempted murder of Gary and two counts of aggravated assault in Atlanta, 
I think in total. He would only serve up to 17 years in Florida to run concurrently with the Atlanta crimes, as opposed to 17 years in Florida and then 17 in Atlanta. That's bullshit. Stupid. That's fucking bullshit. But they should be separate. Yeah, they should. It should be 25 to life, if not more. But then again, he is from a wealthy family and he's Caucasian. So. So despite the uproar and screams pleading for the plea not to go through, which, of course, on February 24th, 1992, Robert followed through and pleaded guilty to two counts of aggravated assault and ordered to pay $65,000 in restitution for medical bills to two Atlanta victims. Which is like, I know he know don't have that money, so that's really sad. Yeah, he, pro- he probably doesn't have that money at that point. So those two victims probably, I don't know if they ever got the money, but they probably didn't. Yeah, there's probably nothing there for them, which is really sad because, like, they're probably, like, knowing if this is the States, they have really super expensive medical bills. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Like, I couldn't imagine being in any kind of accident or needing medical attention in the States and walking away and be like, wow, that just cost me Mm $10,000 alone. And I had an ear infection. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how crazy it is, but that's just me speculating wildly. Yeah. It's a good topic. Yes, crazy because like I know what we bitch about free healthcare in Canada because we pay for it for our taxes. But I can also walk into the emerge, get treated for the ear infection. Might have to wait a couple months for a test, but I'm eventually going to get it and have it for free. Exactly. Yeah. There's that. There's that. So, he was also banned for life from Fulton County and court ordered to see a psychiatrist. That's good. Good. It should be noted that at some point during the plea hearing, maybe before or after, the judge had caught wind of some new information. Ooh. Fulton Superior Court Judge Isaac Generet had asked Robert if he had picked up two male met two men while on bail. He's so like, stupid. We already knew so, this, but he's more stupid, I guess. Yeah. Oh, but with a pause and a quick combo with his lawyer, he supposedly stated, "I'm pleading guilty to the two charges." <laughs> what a fucking dumbass! Oh my god, this man thinks he's God, doesn't he? Basically. Uh, Jesus. The thing is, as mentioned, Robert was on bail, and under his conditions, he was not to leave home, which he shared with his mom, unless it was a pre-approved and to see his lawyers. Robert was allegedly spotted driving up the same Tampa road he had picked up Gary. Tampa detective Bob Holland testified that he had saw Robert and began following him. Oh my god. Bob saw Robert talking with the guy around the same time he had picked up Gary, and it was almost a one-year anniversary of when Gary crossed paths with Robert. Oh my gosh, what a moron. It's like... That meme that you always see going around where it's uh, it's like and it's like the unsolved mysteries murder or uh, thing says, you know, and then he left fingerprints on the doorknob. And then below it's like me. What an idiot. <laughs> this is that situation. It's like, dude, come on. Yeah, just a complete shitty idiot person. Uh, he got sloppy. Mm-hmm. Which good for us, but good, so yeah. Sad. Good, yeah. Maybe. Anyways. Even with this information coming to the forefront, Robert was only given what I call a slap on the wrist, which is stupid. He mm. had to go to jail for two weeks prior to when he was supposed oh to. Oh, my. That's it. Ugh. Yeah. Stupid. When Robert went to jail at the North Florida Reception Center. He was put into solitary confinement right off the bat for protection, which, like, he don't need protection. He needs to go there because he's a shitty person. He deserves to see no light of day. Just yeah, saying. no kidding. You should get the shit kicked out of him. Maybe he, hey, maybe, just maybe, he should be handcuffed and burned a little bit by a couple cigarettes or, you know, a full-fledged gas tank poured on him and <laughs> lit up like a Christmas tree. But 
anyways, that's just, just my opinion. Yes. <laughs> he then moved to Liberty Correctional Institution located in Bristol, Florida. While in jail in 1997, Robert got a disciplinary write-up for disorderly conduct. However, other than that, he was deemed an inoffensive offender. I don't care how good you are in jail. You're still in jail for a specific reason. No, exactly. We don't know what the write-up was for, unfortunately. Uh Robert eventually dropped note as a lawyer, perhaps wrapping up what thinking he would get out in two to three years and not being happy with what happened because he literally committed the crime. So he deserves to do the time, even though it's little time to begin with. Exactly. I was going to say, like, he has to serve 17 years. Plus two weeks. Yeah, plus an extra two weeks. Oh, my God. Like, I'm sorry. Maybe you shouldn't have fucking assaulted men or anyone. Maybe you should have just not been a shitty human being. Just. Mm Mm-hmm. Robert even went as far as filing a lawsuit against Note to try and get his fee back from Note. Oh my god. Like, you're in jail. Who cares if you need the money? Who cares? You're irrelevant. Bye. (laughs) Irrelevant? Irrelevant. He's a piece of shit. I don't know. I'm getting angry. Robert Bennett Jr. Yes. Robert Bennett Jr., aka the Handcuff Man, among other bullshit aliases, would die of a stroke on April 1st, 1988. Hallelujah. A.K.A. died as how he lived his life as a joke. A joke. A fucking joke. How fitting. Mm-hmm. So many gay rights activists were infuriated with this information came out because Robert essentially got off scot-free, even though he was a terror to the community for so long and so many different geographical areas. Not only that, but because he was a white man, came for money, had legal ties, and he was essentially was able to get away with having really nothing to explain for himself for what he did. Mm-hmm. He just got off scot-free. Like, he did die. Okay. Yeah. But, like, just but nothing still. came of it, basically. But he died literally serving not much more of a consequence. Other Like, his victims went through more with what he put them through than he probably had to live as a consequence for what he did. Yeah, like he was barely in jail for like, I don't know, six or less years. Like, it's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Exactly. Max, one of the victims of Robert, later reported that the prosecutors never connected with him to debrief about his bargain, this bargain, which talk about a slap in the face, because if you're well, a victim, yeah. like, you want to be updated and know what's going on. Exactly. And not only that, too, but like, I feel like prosecu- the prosecution should have been went to Max and been like, hey, he might get out in your lifetime still. Like, he mm-hmm. might be a free man while you're still alive. This is what's on the table. Do you have any objections? Like, I don't know if that's how conversations work with victims and prosecution and the prosecutors, but I feel like as a common human decency thing, that should have happened. And it didn't. And it's fucking bullshit. We also don't know how many victims Robert actually had in total. As mentioned, we know that some had come forward and there may have been more, but that haven't, like, but due to discrimination or potentially because of Robert actually murdered them, we just don't know the exact numbers. Like back before when guys were like not coming forward because of coming out, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So we just don't know how many really happened or what happened. Yeah. And like I had mentioned earlier, it was that, you know, there were some movements happening, but you still, it still wasn't a safe time to come out, right? So a lot mm-hmm. of people, you know, were having to hide and having to essentially, go through all these different things and really suffer. Yeah, like it's just complete bullshit. That's what it is. So in a quote from Jeff Graham of ACT UP, he reads, I think clearly it was, it were a case involving heterosexuals that if he had done this to a woman, to a straight man, that his sentence would have been much greater than what it is. It has taken the Atlanta police 
department dozens of years to seriously investigate and solve this case. Which is completely true. It's true. Like it's, it's just, yeah. It's just a matter of, like, the population of who, what it happened to and whatnot. And it's ridiculous. Not only mm-hmm. that, too, but I feel like because he came from money, because he was white, because he was, you know, had legal ties in various areas, he got away with so much. Like, I, I we've said it once, we'll say it again. He was so privileged mm-hmm. that he did not have to worry about anything even in jail he didn't have like he was put into isolation right off the bat yeah to protect to be protected and it's like fuck that no throw him in the fucking dragon's den like see Mm -hmm. if he survives why should go to den pop and get shivved we don't care yeah like why should he get protection even more protection after literally picking on communities that were forced to be silenced It's, Mm -hmm. it's 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 just a really shitty demonstration of you know privilege it's a it's, it's a well no it's a great representation, great demonstration of, of privilege yeah it's, it's a just, demonstration just to tell you that this is what happens to minority populations and just yeah. the, the should they get dealt pretty much so another from judy kolbs part of the atlanta's parents and friends of lesbians and gays said another direct quote setting people on fire is setting people on fire it should have no. It should not matter what the sexual orientation is. It goes back to prejudice. Prejudice. It affects and invades all parts of society. Yeah, spot on. Set people on fire. It's the same thing with like Sam Little and like his victims, right? If you think about it, he picked on sex workers, sex workers primarily, yeah. or women of color, or you know what I mean. Like, very mm. rarely did he go after a white woman. Um, who was from a wealthy family. I think there was maybe like one or two known white women. But anyways, like he went for people who were not being protected by those that are supposed to protect everybody in society. And Robert did the exact same fucking thing. The Mm -hmm. exact same fucking thing. Which is how he's got away with it for so long until shit caught up with him, but not soon enough. Exactly. And that's the story of Robert Bennett Jr. A.K.A. the shittiest human. One of the shittiest humans to walk this earth. I feel like we need to make a shelf of, like, all the shitty humans we talk about on this show. I think not too many. I, there's going to be a lot more, obviously. But I feel not... I don't want to do it in a way that, like, puts a spotlight on them. And it's like, ooh, ah, they're so special. No, it's just, like... Kind of like a place where we can put these people, we can out these people and throw rocks at them and say, wow, you're fucking a shithead. You're a shitty human being. You're a shitty human being, Robert Bennett Jr. And I hope you are just not having a great time wherever the fuck your soul is. Hopefully in hell. Or wherever. (laughs) Or wherever, you know. You believe. Yeah, wherever you believe and wherever you get your ass fucking handed to you. Anyways, so. Basically. That is the case. Thank you for have having this with me because it was no it was long. It's a doozy. Uh, if you like what you hear, if you don't like what you hear, if you wanna, I don't know, hit us, up, say hi, tell us, you know, what you're doing for the month of January 2021. I don't know. You can email us at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. Uh, you can find us on essentially every podcast platform, including, but not limited to, Apple Podcasts, leave us five stars, would love a review. That would be splendid, especially right now. If you do that, you have a chance to win a $25 gift card to Amazon. Yes, I know we're supporting Jeff Bezos, but 
it's just, you also get our merch so you also get our merch yeah so you're like you're supporting someone hi- like him but you're also supporting us which is kind of cool because we don't have that jeff bezo money um <laughs> we wish <laughs> we wish but no uh and so yes we're on apple Podcasts, spotify good pods oh my gosh uh iHeartRadio, like essentially wherever everything you, yeah essentially wherever you listen to podcasts we're probably there we are on social media too so we're on instagram facebook Twitter and TikTok, because you know we'd be doing the those dances. You know we don't actually do the dances. Uh, I would never do the dances. <laughs> no. On essentially, if you're looking for us on social media, you can find us at Weird Distractions Pod or Weird Distractions Podcast. On Twitter, though, we are at Weird Distract I One. That is at Weird Distract I One. Apparently, someone took Weird Distractions away before I could grab it. So it, it how was, dare they? I know, you know what? It was kind of rude, but being Canadian, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to get upset about it. I'm I'm going to let it slide. I'm going to just jump back quick and just say the resources. So oh, for that story yeah. was um, <laughs> Wikipedia, Robert Bend at the Handcuffed Man Serial Killer, um, an article from Truba.com about Serial Killer, Handcuffed Weird Man, and mm-hmm. Atlanta Eater article, Memory Lane by Sonia Chopra, January 2013, and of course, Murderpedia. Thank you, resources. We appreciate you. (laughs) All right. You know what? I think it's time to call it a day. I think it's time to lock our doors and call it a day. I'm going to lock my door, stay in lockdown, have a drink. Exactly. If you need a distraction. We got you. Bye. Bye. They murdered her. A vile and disgraceful act. We were able to discover the remains of two humans. Welcome to Crime Lapse. I am Eileen. And I'm Charlie. Crime Lapse is a true crime podcast that uses primary audio, in-depth research and emotive narration to give you an immersive insight into the darkest tales and most horrifying crimes. Find Crime Lapse wherever you listen to podcasts and at Crime Lapse Podcast or at Crime Lapse Pod on social media. Everyone has a story to tell, so why not let us tell you some? <laughs>